And we thank you, Lord, that the words of the old hymn are true because they reflect what you've promised to us. Grace beyond comprehension that'll take us all eternity to understand. Thank you. Help me now preach in light of it. Forgive my sins. And forgive ours, Lord, as we confess them to you so that we may live as we're told. In Christ's name I pray. Crosspoint says, Amen. We are in a four-week series regarding the will of God, and this might be the most important and practical sermon in the series. I don't know. Sermons are much like aircraft. You don't take off on them as a preacher unless you're reasonably sure of a safe landing, but sometimes you find out in mid-flight that important steps were missed, and you're getting for a bumpy landing. Hopefully that will not be the case today because... Romans 14, 2,000 years ago, gives us timely, up to the moment, timely as Twitter instruction on how to live through the current chaos and divisiveness, not only in the world, but regrettably in the church. We're not responsible for the world. We are responsible to it. We are responsible to present Jesus, his death and his resurrection to the world. That's their only hope. We are responsible for one another and to one another to live as God's children in the age where he has placed us. And given a choice, none of us would have chosen to live through the last 18 months if we could have chosen our time in history. It is not by any stretch the hardest time in anybody's memory, probably, unless you're very young. The nation and the world have lived through barbaric and brutal wars. Our nation was once in a shooting war, citizen against citizen, father against brother, spilling American blood with every life that was taken. We fought two world wars. We endured the trauma of Vietnam and everything else, tragedies great and small that people have to live through. But these 18 months have felt different to many of us. They felt different to me because never in my 32 years of pastoring have I been asked so many times by so many people about so many different things how they should think about something and what they should do about a particular decision. That's why I'm glad that Romans 14 is in the Bible. Romans 14 is a letter written to churches in the city of Rome regarding settling controversial questions among the church. It's a family talk. It's not a talk of how to behave toward the world. That's separate. That's also in Romans. This is a talk on how to treat each other when they, as a church family, as individuals within a church family, don't agree with one another. Have you noticed that Christians occasionally disagree with one another? (laughs) Christians can fight about anything and everything and have. From carpet color (laughs) to things that actually matter. So I'd like to tell you, moving right through Romans 14, God helping me quickly, how to settle controversial questions, because many questions that Christians face will be debatable. Not everything is a matter of eternal importance. And understanding that, that the vast majority of questions and decisions that you will face, the vast majority of them will be debatable, will be a matter of opinion, that Discovery alone will make you more peaceful. 
It is legalism and misunderstanding and frankly biblical ignorance that elevates everything to a matter of eternal importance. Very few things are actually of eternal importance. Many things matter. Very few of them make the difference between heaven and hell, between eternal life and eternal death. In Romans 14, I know that that is true because Paul begins his explanation with Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over, what's it say? Opinions. Other translations say over matters of controversy, over debatable matters. Paul here is going to talk about two kinds of people in the church. Some he calls weak in faith, others he calls strong in faith. And Romans 14 was written some 2,000 years ago. It doesn't address our issues. Before you move to apply Paul's wisdom to your specific question, your specific debatable issue, it's important to understand that he's addressing specific things that were dividing Christian churches in his day. What were first century Christians arguing about? They were arguing, we learn from reading the chapter itself, about two things. First of all, they were arguing about food. They were asking each other these kinds of questions. Shouldn't what we eat be kosher? All these dietary laws, all the writings of Moses that we've heard in the synagogue that are so dear to the Jews who have welcomed Jesus as their Messiah, should that really just be set aside? Shouldn't everything we eat be kosher? And because they lived in Rome, the heart of Greco-Roman culture and of the Roman Empire, Gentile Christians who hadn't grown up hearing the law of Moses, who had never given kosher food a consideration in their lives, they had a separate question. Can we eat food if it was sacrificed to an idol? Because very often in the butcher shops of the first century, a small ceremonial, merely symbolic portion of all the meat that was going to be sold at the market was taken and sacrificed, laid on an altar perhaps of a false god. And Gentile Christians reasonably had an objection and a concern. If I buy that meat and eat that meat, am I having dinner with demons? Am I giving allegiance to my old way of life? Wouldn't it be better just to be vegetarian? And there were Christians in, the wor- in this church, and Paul's going to identify himself in the middle of his instruction, who had a strong conscience and what Paul calls a strong faith that says, it's just food. Don't worry about it. Eat anything and everything you want. Just thank God for it when you do. Others said, you're, you're wrong, you're licentious, you're taking far too much freedom. Surely to honor the Lord, we should be careful and maybe honor our old kosher dietary restrictions and certainly, surely, we're not supposed to be eating food that was sacrificed to an idol first. They were arguing about food. They were also arguing about days for the same reason. Because for literally millennia, The Jewish believers who are now in the church of Rome have honored the Saturday as the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. They were asking themselves, shouldn't we honor a day of the week to honor God? Shouldn't we refrain from all work? 
Shouldn't we set that day aside to honor the Lord? And you can imagine how hard it would be for somebody talking to someone like that to say, nah, it's all over. All days are the same. Do whatever you want on Saturday. These questions were explosive because they involved ethnicity. They involved scripture. They involved personal religious history. In other words, three tables loaded with lethal amounts of electricity to fight over. Ethnic divisions, interpretations of God's own word, which everybody had received as the word of God. They differed on how to interpret it. And perhaps just as importantly, the fact that these customs, whether to keep the law of Moses or to participate with idols, had been ancestral. Jewish people and Gentile believers within this same church likely felt like they were betraying not only God, but their grandmother if they, cho- if they practiced something that violated their conscience. If they started eating pork, for instance, if they had been keeping kosher their whole lives, or if knowing the wretched idolatry that permeated their world that led people into so much gross sexual immorality that kept people away from Jesus, surely I should honor Jesus now by having nothing to do with food that has actually been used in worship to a false god. You understand how that could be controversial? It's not just in Romans. Paul has a whole other section, which I won't take time to explain to you, to settle this kind of controversy also with the Corinthian church. You can find that in 1 Corinthians. Now here's what you need to know. Because I'm not all over the New Testament today. I'm in a single chapter. Paul is unyielding in matters of eternal importance and accommodating in everything else. If it made the difference between receiving Jesus as Lord, Paul was ready to fight literally unto the death. In fact, he gave his life for Christ. In the book of Galatians, when he hears that the Galatian church is being lured away from trusting Jesus as Savior and back into the old customs of Judaism, false teachers have told them they must be circumcised in order to be saved. In the very first chapter, which pulses with Paul's anger, he says, if anybody is bothering you with a false gospel, I want him to be a curse not once but twice. Later, he says, I wish those who are bothering you would castrate themselves. If you don't believe that's in the Bible, don't look it up now. It's right in the middle of Galatians. (laughs) These people who are so concerned with circumcision, I wish they'd go the whole way. Pretty strong. Pastor said that today, he'd end up on Twitter. (laughs) There'd be protest about the harsh language. Why is Paul so worked up? It's a matter of heaven and hell. It's a matter of being saved and forgiven or not. It's a matter between choosing your own righteousness and your own religion or surrendering to Jesus and being saved. Those are essential matters. And in 16 years in our church, we fought a battle over an essential matter one time. And people I still love fell into the error of the Galatians. And we did what Paul did. We were very, very clear about that. And when they realized that we were clear and unyielding, they left. Everything else 
that we fought about in this church. And this church has been very peaceful for years now, and I thank you and the Lord for it. Everything else that we've ever fought about in this church has been a matter of what Paul calls opinion. I promise you. The eternal matters are not that many. They have the weight of eternity in them. They save men and women to heaven or they condemn them to hell. They are worth living for and they are worth dying for, but they are not that many. And the trouble with legalism is it takes among these precious few gospel-centric, Jesus-saturated issues that separate the line between salvation and lostness. Legalism wants to bring other issues that are important but not that important and elevate them to that status. And the result is division and hatred and anger and rumors and gossip and anonymous letters and all kinds of things. Those of you who have been in church for very long have probably endured church fights like that. Let me just ask you, have you ever been in a church fight over something that you ultimately realized was not the difference between heaven and hell? Could I, could I ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been through those? Look around. Just keep your hands up just for a second. That's easily half the crowd. What a shame. How do we navigate these things? Here's Paul's answer. The answer at the heart of this letter is we have all been welcomed by God, we're Christians. And he is going to be, as I told you, unyielding in matters of eternal importance, and he's going to be accommodating in everything else. And he explains, beginning in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, in other words, the one who wants to keep kosher, the one who wants to observe a day to honor the Lord, as for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, he's just as much a Christian as you are. Don't make him a second-class citizen. Don't keep him out of the church. Welcome him, but don't welcome him to fight with him. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. What's it say? For God has welcomed him. What matters is the welcome of God. God has welcomed those who have a sensitive conscience and those who have a strong conscience. He has welcomed them both into his family, so you must do the same. Welcome him and not to quarrel over opinions with him. This gets pretty strong. Hold on to your hat. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. And since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. You might want to underline this in your Bible. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are what? For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will have to give an account of himself to God. First and most important truth, we will all answer to God for our life and conduct. Don't forget that. The way you've behaved this week, you will answer to God for it. Every Facebook post, every email forward, every whispered conversation, every group chat, every phone call, every group chat you've started without including somebody, you'll answer to God for it. So will I, every moment, every breath, every decision, every emotion, it's all open to God who Hebrews says has everything naked and exposed to his sight. There are no secrets before him. We'll answer for all of it. You understand Paul's reasoning? Those of you who are strong, who you have come to understand that it's just food, You don't stand in judgment over your weak brother and talk about him as ignorant and uninformed. Don't get up on your high spiritual horse and praise yourself on your own deeper understanding. You who have a sensitive conscience who were saved last week, stand as a slave, have always been under human masters, have had to eat food sacrificed to idols, and now you understand in the glory of Jesus that those idols are false, and you're so in love with Jesus and so grateful for the difference he made in you that now you want nothing to do with the market where the idols were previously worshipped? You don't criticize that stronger brother who tells you that you're wrong and you just don't understand grace Stop your whispering campaign and stop telling people that he's actually a pagan and not really a Christian because he eats meat that offends you. No one is to judge. No one is is to condemn because it says, verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Those who find themselves strong and those who find themselves weak should always remember that all of us alike will stand before God. Here are the implications of that. We don't criticize and condemn other Christians for making the opposite choice in a matter of opinion. America and its churches would be so much farther ahead if Christians in things that will not make an eternal difference would leave people alone and leave them to God and use their Christian freedom to follow the conscience that God has given them at that moment and stop with criticism and condemnation because a critical spirit is evidence of carnality and not maturity. And I say that to myself as much as I do to anyone else. There are some Christians who think that continually criticizing other Christians, including people they've never met, 
who they've experienced only in a two-minute soundbite. It is, their, it is their ministry and it shows their maturity to be a constant beacon of criticism, warning, and judgment so that others will be warned and so enlightened. Paul says in matters that are not eternally important, in matters that he calls opinions, it is not so. The mature brother knows to keep quiet. The mature sister knows not to fight. Second guiding principle. This is the least popular of them. We must limit the use of our God-given liberty because of our love for others. Now that right there in some churches will get me fired if at least, or perhaps a letter writing campaign. We love liberty. And we should. But Paul's going to go on to explain that for the most mature of believers, knowing that they are utterly and completely free before Christ because they answer to God, they will gladly and willingly limit the liberty that they could actually enjoy, not because their liberty is infringed, but because they love other people, because they love people more than exercising their liberty as fully as they would like on every single occasion. Look in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You want to hear maturity? Here it is, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul's not being cagey. He's actually agreeing with the stronger brothers. Do you see that? Regarding this matter of food, Paul, the most kosher of anybody who's reading this letter, the student of Gamaliel, the ultra-Orthodox Jew, the Pharisee of Pharisees, born in the tribe of Benjamin, and if you've read the Bible, you know his credentials. Paul can lay out his credentials with the best of them. There is nobody that has a Jewish credentials like the Apostle Paul. And here he is saying, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, I don't have to keep kosher anymore. I can eat things in my freedom in Christ of all kinds, but... Listen, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. That's a matter of conscience. Paul is saying, my conscience is very strong. I'm no longer bothered by meat, no matter where it came from and who it was offered to. I understand now in Christ that God made all foods to be enjoyed. I can enjoy them all. But if your conscience bothers you, if you believe it's unclean, then to you... It is. Here comes love. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I can't begin to tell you, but I'm going to try to explain to you at least a little bit how much love is found in verses 15, 14 and 15. Paul says, I have the liberty in Christ. I'm convinced in Jesus that I can eat anything I please. 
But if my enjoying my liberty does the slightest harm to you, I'll have nothing to do with it. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians explicitly. Your soul, your conscience, your spiritual maturity, your progression matters so much more to me than me exercising all my rights. What are we learning here? Look down in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to what? Paul says, listen, if I exercise my liberty to those who have just been saved by paganism, and I know I'm right, the Lord has shown it to me. I'm further along than them, but if I exercise my liberty in front of them, I very well may make them fall back into their old life and think that there's no difference in being a Christian at all, and they may take it well beyond food and fall into the sexual immorality and the things that are actually offensive to God that God has forbidden. They may fall back into all of those, so I'm going to limit my liberty for their sake, not because I'm free, but because I love them more than exercising my liberty. If I'm with people who are not so troubled, who are not bothered by conscience, I'll eat it all. If I don't know where it came from, I'll gladly eat it with thanks to the Lord. But if there is the slightest chance that one of these little brothers will stumble and fall back into sin, I prefer to limit my liberty so that they can continue walking in holiness. If that spirit would increase in my heart and in the heart of every Christian, we might yet see what God can do in a truly unified church and movement across the United States. Implications, loving people insist on serving others and not their own rights. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. This means that we don't do anything that would cause another Christian to violate their conscience and that strong Christians are known for their consideration of the weak. We've been talking about the family table. The essence of being a faithful, loving parent is that you limit your liberty. Not because you're no longer free, but because you now have other family members to account for. Make sense? If you have a young child in your care and you act as if you were childless and single, you're not a loving parent. I'm a grown man. I'll stay up as late as I want. Who has Billy? I don't know. Don't you have a child? Yeah, but I'm free. No, that's, that's a lack of love. You know who always insists on exercising all their rights at any time with anyone? Children. That's the difference. Paul here, the strongest conscience, the strongest Christian in the first century is saying... Because I'm so strong, I will gladly make myself weak. I will limit myself. I will act, though I am free, I will act as a slave, not because I am, but for the sake of others. Strong Christians are known for their consideration of the weak. They choose not to do anything that would cause another Christian to violate their conscience. Third principle. Read verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. That's an admonition to the strong. Yes, you're free. Yes, you can enjoy that good thing, but don't do it in such a way that would give to others the appearance and make them speak of your actions as evil. 
Here's the heart of the chapter. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Please look again carefully. At verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, so then let us pursue what makes for what? Peace and for mutual upbuilding. You can plug in the controversies of the day into these verses. The kingdom of God is unchanged. The kingdom of God has never been about debatable matters. The kingdom of God always and only has been about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Consequently, Christians have a responsibility to pursue peace. Let me ask you, have you pursued peace during the pandemic? It's hard to pursue peace. It's much easier to make war. I can start a fight today. I can start a fight right now. I can say something right now that offends every single one of you. That's easy. Taking Jesus seriously and doing things like turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, that that American expression, by the way, that we've adopted into the United States, that speaks of the kind of selfless selfless sacrifice that Paul here is explaining. By Roman law, a Roman soldier or official had the ability to compel anybody to carry one of his burdens with him, and at a mile marker, he had to release him. There was a limit to tyranny. That's why Jesus said, if anyone compels you to go with them a mile, go another. That Roman soldier turns to you and says, well, you're free. You say, no, I'll go the extra mile with you. I'll keep carrying this for you, sir. What kind of impression would that have made on a Roman soldier who knew he was hated and he was called a pig and a dog and a tyrant every day of his life, who knew he was sworn at as soon as his back was turned? To have someone under subjection to him say willingly, I'll go with you an extra mile. That's a witness to the unbelieving world. Why? Because it pursues peace. It pursues righteousness. It pursues joy in the Holy Spirit. Implications, the faithful use of our freedom. Shown by the advancement of the work of God and the development of the character of Christ. Paul says not to destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Verse 20. And there are far too many Christians over far too many issues. I've seen it my entire lifetime. And I commend you again. This is not a corrective sermon. This is an instructive sermon to help you understand why so many of you have reflexively out of love for Jesus and others kept quiet about things that don't matter and been tolerant and peaceful and made the peace rather than make war with one another. 
I've told you many times, and I'll say it again. I was talking to a church member last night at a kid's football game. The children were waging war, and we were talking about peace. And he read me a whole slew of statistics about the division, the disappearance, the existential threats against congregations. Whole churches have disappeared. Budgets have been ruined. Families have been divided. Entire denominations have been shaken. And he had a series of questions, very specific questions about how our church was doing. And my answer was, as hard as it has been, it's been our finest hour. Because you've pursued peace. Because you've set the joy of Christ and the joy of others ahead of your own preferences. Because you've understood that it's not worth destroying another person and destroying the work of God for the sake of enforcing your own preferences. The faithful use of our freedom is shown. We use our freedom well, in other words, when the work of God goes forward and the character of Christ is developed. Here's the fog-cutting question. After all we've been through as a country, after all you've been through as a family, after all we've been through as a congregation, are you more or less like Jesus because of it? Because it's one of those two things. Every one of us is growing more and more into the likeness of the old sin and selfishness that characterized us before we met Jesus, or we're more and more gradually day by day, decision by decision, emotion by emotion, choice by choice, becoming more like our Savior Jesus Christ. If you find yourself in yourself cynicism and hatred and bitterness, if you find that you've become more critical and judgmental, at the end of this service, please tell the Lord Jesus you're sorry. You'll answer to him someday. It'd be better to answer to him now and get all that cleared up at this moment. And fourth and final principle, we act only with faith, with no doubts of conscience. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Here's the simple rule. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is what? Sin. Paul here is expanding something he said much earlier in verse 5. Look at verse 5 in the last sentence. Each one should be what? Fully convinced in his own mind. In these controversial matters, in other words, Paul says, to honor the Lord, act only with faith. Make the controversial decision, say yes, only when you can do so with a clear conscience. To make it very clear, if your conscience is troubled, don't do it. If your conscience is strengthened and grows stronger like Paul's, and someday you're convinced that you've been depriving yourself of something you could have been doing all along, do it then. Don't do it now while you're doubting, because you should be, verse 5, fully convinced in your own mind, because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You should be fully persuaded in your own mind. Paul's giving a responsibility to each person, both the weak and the strong. You need to make absolutely sure that according to your own convictions, you're settled on this. And when you're settled, then you act, not with doubt. When in doubt, in other words, don't. This is wisdom. 
It's such a harder path to legalism. What this means, church, is that in controversial matters, Christians can make opposite choices and both please the Lord. Did you take that in? It's not easy. It's not easy to see another Christian making the opposite of your choice and think that they're wise. It's not easy to think that they're right in doing so. Again, these are not matters of heaven and hell. These are things that Paul calls matters of opinion, which again are the vast majority of things that you have to navigate in life. The vast number of things that people have sought my pastoral advice over always. The ultimate question is it doesn't matter that much. These are the guardrails. Are you within the guardrails? Yes. Then pick any lane you want and drive as fast as you dare. And if the Lord later shows you that there's a better lane, move lanes. Stay between the guardrails of his revealed word of matters of heaven and hell, of matters of holiness and wickedness in all other things. Do what the Lord leads you to do. Obey your own conscience. And when somebody else makes the opposite decision, you do what Paul says. You welcome him as a brother. And not in a condescending way. Ah, you poor, stupid, weak child. (laughs) Sit with me for a moment and be instructed. No, that's, con- that's condemnation, that's contempt, that's judgment. That's not the way family treat one another. Here's Paul's idea. Christian liberty is used knowing that we will answer to God for the way we treat others. These past 18 months, in fact, your whole life, You'll answer to God before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You will answer primarily and eternally whether you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. With that settled and secure, according to the judgment seat of Christ, you will answer to God for every word spoken, every choice made, and every single way you have chosen to treat others. So live humbly. Remember that God will call you to account for your life and conduct. Lovingly limit your freedom, not because you're not free, but because you love other people so much. In all things, pursue peace and righteousness and building the other person up. And when you're not sure, do only what you can do in full faith, knowing that you're going to answer to God for the way you treat other people. Let's pray. I don't have anything else to say except to open this as a quiet space for you to talk to Jesus, ask forgiveness for sins, maybe thank Him for the way He's kept you and guarded you in these hard times. Ask Him to encourage you in your further continued obedience to Him. Lord Jesus, unite us in your love. May love for you be supreme. And because we love you, may we love and serve others, including limiting ourselves, giving away things that belong to us 
temporarily leaving rights aside so that others may be served and sought. Lord, I praise you for the unity and the love of this church. It's been extraordinary. You've done great things here in the strangest, hardest time that we've ever endured together. You've kept us together for the sake of your love, so help us keep this pace together. Encourage, Lord, those who are downhearted, feel persecuted. Let us, Lord, for your sake, because we love you, serve each other. In Christ's name I pray. Cross Point says, amen. God bless you. Love you.